citizen, the training, chapter 27. It was 1999, and the Millennium Bug needed to be solved and tested before the year ended. Y2K compliance was a scramble, and Tracy was dispatched to test all manner of electronic equipment. The team traveled at a manic pace, and sometimes the tasks were downright dangerous. One time, Tracy's team was sent to Canada for a job in a warehouse. The equipment to be tested was fixed to the ceiling a hundred feet above the floor, at least in Tracy's mind. Because he was the lightest and tallest, Tracy was chosen to go up in the cherry picker for the test. Once they were buckled into their harnesses, the operator ran the controls and pushed them slowly to the top of the ceiling. When they got there, Tracy wasn't close enough to read the instrument. Don't worry, the operator said. We can inch forward. This didn't seem like a good idea to Tracy, but it took a good five minutes to get up there, which would mean ten minutes down and back up. Because of the height, Tracy was barely able to stay in the basket as it was. So the operator inched the picker forward, and nothing happened. Then he inched the picker forward again. Now wait, the operator said. In a few seconds, the basket moved what seemed ten feet one way and then ten feet the other. Tracy felt he was in the final scene from It's a Mad, 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 Mad World, swinging off the end of the fire truck ladder like a rag doll. The other warehouse guys had their feet safely on the ground. So, when they laughed at Tracy, he gave them his lunch. But for the most part, unlike the desert that was Chattanooga, Tracy came into a season of harvest in Atlanta. The time of dark trials and sadness had passed, and Tracy grabbed everything the Lord had for him. He made good friends at Tava Technologies, the first of which was Lady T. She knew everything, including that Tracy was looking to downsize to a cheaper apartment. After his first travel was finished, she handed Tracy a list. Here you go, honey, Lady T said. I found these in your price range. And she ducked out of Tracy's office. But no matter how far away Lady T was, or should have been, she was always within earshot and could appear at whim. Regardless, Tracy began his calls and used his speakerphone. The first on his list was a small bungalow. The woman answered right away. Yes, this is Mr. Staples, Tracy said. I am interested in the bungalow for rent. Oh, yes, the woman said, with an antebellum accent most becoming. It is a charming unit behind a large old home on a lovely tree-lined street. That sounds nice, Tracy said. Oh, my, it most certainly is, she said enthusiastically. 
and by the sound of your voice I can tell you would fit perfectly here. All the houses in the neighborhood are white. That's okay, Tracy said. I don't mind painting. Lady T's head peeked around exactly in the middle of the office doorframe. Tremayo, she hissed. Hang up the phone. And how much did you say it was? Tracy asked. Hang up the phone right now, Lady T said louder. That sounds great, Tracy said to the woman. Hang up, Lady T ordered with a growl and started for him. The hair sticks in her jet black bun seemed to glow with anger. But I have to go right now, Tracy said. A colleague needs me. And he hung up the phone. What's wrong with you? Lady T immediately changed her stride, donned a bless his heart look, and came over to put her tiny hand on Tracy's shoulder for comfort. Honey, Lady T drawled, when that woman said all the houses in her neighborhood were white, she wasn't talking about the paint color. Lady T nodded her head. She's racist, sweetie. And I don't want to see you in that environment. Lady T had Tracy's back, and more followed. Tracy worked with different teams, but after a while the trifecta became the norm. Christopher was a nerdy genius who, at eighteen, earned his bachelor's in engineering from Georgia Tech. He also spoke several languages, which was why he had recently returned from Japan. The team lead was Vince, a large black retired Navy guy who talked to the client too much. Different fourths joined the three on trips to record data and provide the laugh track, but Lady T made sure Greg kept the trifecta of Christopher, Vince, and Tracy together. Tracy found this fact out on one of their breaks. Lady T went outside to smoke. And Tracy ate his banana. In return for Lady T's watchful eye with scheduling, Tracy made runs for Happy Meals because Lady T was addicted to collecting Beanie Babies. Tracy eventually had to stage an intervention, which happened on Thursday, February twenty-third, nineteen ninety-nine, when Lady T had her radio on in her office. And now for traffic. The announcer said, "There's been an accident on 285, and get this: Beanie Babies are scattered across all four lanes. Motorists are stopping to risk life and limb to grab as many as they can, ignoring police direction and practically shutting down both sides of the interstate." Tramail! Lady T screamed and bolted out of her office, pulling on her coat. Tracy met her in the hall and looked to see who else needed to escape the fire. Come on, Lady T panted. We gotta take an early lunch, sweetie. There's piles of defenseless beanie babies on two eighty-five, and they're in desperate need of rescuing. When Tracy heard beanie babies, he grabbed Lady T's arm and arrested her. She tried to explain the urgency. But Tracy wouldn't let go. Eventually, Tracy managed to calm her with some cookies, and soon 
The great Lady T was back in control of her office. With that crisis averted, Atlanta was soon fixed electronically, and the trifecta headed up the East Coast. When the team went to Waltham, Massachusetts, they had a week-long stint, and Tracy had another encounter with the Angel. As the team came back from lunch, Tracy drove the rental car. Christopher was co-pilot, and Vince and the fourth guy were in the back. When they approached a red light, Tracy stopped. Come here, the angel said. I want to talk to you about some things. Tracy was pulled out of his body and taken to an open room with white walls. It was the same angel with the clipboard and scribing pen. Tracy knew he was sent by his instruction, but it was odd to happen while he was driving. Nonetheless, the angel turned to Tracy in the pure whiteness. He has big plans set out for you, the angel said. See if you agree. Tracy thought this was mostly a rhetorical statement, but God gave man free will, so Tracy had the right of first refusal. I have been sent to talk to you about them, the angel said. From experience, Tracy knew this would be less talking and more showing. He hoped he wasn't about to be hunted by more demons or like visceral lessons, but the room was peacefully white. The angel wasn't snarky and actually pleasant to Tracy, perhaps from their last encounter with the demon. They also seemed to have all the time in the world. Show me what? Tracy asked. Since Tracy asked, the angel produced a small object from his pocket, which resembled a thick, oversized playing card. The angel held it with his left palm facing upward. When he rubbed his right index finger across the top, it flicked an image onto the wall as a projection. The first scene was of canals that ran by warm brick houses next to green lawns. Smooth plastered homes sat next to a low bridge. This led to a large square where official white buildings had affixed gilded ornaments. Every building was lived in, well cared for, and had earned its place. The canal water was clear and smelled sweet from the linden trees that shaded them. Then the angel waved another scene onto the wall, and the first image shifted to the left. The second image was a field of green wheat. In the center, a great pyramid of grass had a bronze lion on top. The mound was incredibly steep and full of rabbit holes, and long ears randomly popped up, followed by eyes to see who was on their roof. This is like the picture book, Tracy said. Only on a much grander scale. He said you catch on fast, the angel said, and his eyes lit up. Let's see how fast. The angel flipped more pictures onto the wall. As he did, the previous image went to the left and bent in an arc behind Tracy. As more wonderful images flew onto the wall, they were whisked out of the way for the next, and soon Tracy was inside the drum of a life-sized zoetrope. 
These are the things I have been sent to show you, the angel said. The angel waved his hand counterclockwise, and the pictures flew around with Tracy as their axes and gained momentum. Faster and faster, the pictures formed a whirlwind of things to come. Amid the tumult of sights, sounds, and smells, the angel turned to Tracy. Do you take on this mission? he asked. Tracy was busy absorbing the wonder and diversity of all he was shown, but he smiled and nodded. With that, the angel stopped the visual tornado. The pictures flew back into the card on the angel's palm, and the walls went white. "'Do you have all that?' the angel asked. Tracy knew the answer was yes, even with as many questions he had about what he was shown." Tracy also knew he would bring it back to remembrance, which was grace, so Tracy nodded again. Good, the angel said, and Tracy was immediately put back into his body. Hello everyone, Tracy here. I hope you're enjoying my story. We'll let you know how to support this podcast later. But for now, the best thing you can do is follow us and share it with your friends and family. So if you like what you're hearing, please help us out by telling people about it. And thanks again. Tracy's foot was on the brake of the rental car and he and his three companions sat at the red light. Tracy was rightly disoriented, and now terrified he was driving. How long have we been at this light? Tracy asked carefully. The team was puzzled by the question, but Christopher answered. We just pulled up to it. You mean we didn't just sit through a cycle of lights? No, Christopher said. You just stopped the car, Tracy. To Tracy's mind, he had to have been gone at least five minutes with the angel. It was difficult to comprehend that the vision was out of time, even though he felt time pass. That's weird, Tracy said. No, Tracy, the tall, shiny silver figure said. It is not weird. This is real. And to prove to you this is real, turn on the radio. Tracy abruptly turned on the radio. On cue, the trumpets blasted in perfect synchronicity. The bass drum's hit followed, and the horns finished the famous riff. Then, the signature bass line of Got to Be Real by Cheryl Lynn serenaded Tracy and the team. The lyrics were even more extraordinary, particularly as Tracy realized how much the definition of love transcended flesh, and how his love is your love, and our love is his love, and all of love is here to stay. That was real! Tracy screamed. This was Tracy's second musical gift, and he was nearly out of his mind. He danced in his seat like when he came home from the hospital as a toddler, 
or stood in front of his papa's stereo console, singing, Oh, happy day, at the top of his lungs, except now it was real. But Christopher wanted to know, What was real? You have no idea what just happened to me. Tracy yelled and laughed at the same time, and the light turned green. Tracy took off through the intersection, and his team feared for their life, wondering about the madman behind the wheel. As time went by, Tracy's co-workers were intrigued. Because Christopher, Vince, and Tracy traveled together so often, Tracy felt comfortable enough to share his encounters. As more time passed, his associates saw more things revealed to Tracy, and they believed. Then, from experience, they knew whatever problem came up, if Tracy was involved, it would be a success. Then the team went to Europe and stayed abroad for two weeks. There, the scenes Tracy previewed with the angel turned into deja vu moments from the picture book. Then, Tracy felt him beside him as his guide, and the tall, shiny silver figure's presence drew Tracy's attention to things that were important. In Belgium, it was the dew on the crisp green grass, and he pointed out the scent of the outlying vineyards. As Tracy gazed at the intricate Flemish architecture of the College of Louvain-la-Nueve, Tracy felt the centuries of struggle. He appreciated the winemaking that built the campus and the victory of each building's survival through World War II. From there, Tracy was soothed by the old-world comfort and heaped chocolates of Bruges. Like the Easter he experienced in Charlotte, Tracy's eyes were opened to a sharpened vibrancy of color. He felt the textures of the building materials reflected in the bends of the circular canals. Everything was familiar, and the tall, shiny silver figure delighted in showing Tracy the gem sights planned for him so long ago on his lap. At Waterloo, the team arrived too late to enter the grounds legally, but it was an easy jump over a fence to cross the field of midsummer wheat. The sun glowed over the trench mounds and enormous field. Tracy crossed the wide expanse, and rabbit holes and eyes were everywhere. At dusk, the two scaled the back of the pyramid to remain undetected, and encountered the massive bronze lion atop his granite perch. There, silence held Paul over the enormity of war that stretched from 1815 to the beautiful peace of the evening rolling out before them. Tracy's travels were also interesting. The new pill for sexual enhancement was noteworthy. During that testing... Tracy was placed in a small kitchen-sized room. In the center was a machine with mechanical arms in every direction that made the tablets. There was a fine white dust everywhere, and Tracy wore a clean suit. Because of secrecy, thirty-six cameras watched his every move. The first time Tracy was introduced to this type of equipment was in the States. 
Now he was in Sandwich, England. Surprisingly, it was when the team ordered a bucket of extra crispy chicken that they met a man familiar with the process. The team's server was in his late twenties. He had a pale, attractive face that matched his British accent, which intrigued Tracy. So, what are you blokes doing in town? he asked. We're doing an inspection at one of the local plants, Tracy said. Oh, yeah, he said. I used to work there, he said with a twinkle. Please don't ask, Christopher said quietly. Tracy smiled. What did you do there? Well, the young man said, I must have been a tough subject for the little blue pill then, mustn't I? Then the chicken was ready, so the man left to put their meal together. Christopher moved closer to Tracy and spoke to the side. Please, Christopher said. He is using his hands to get our chicken, and I don't want to know anything about this right now. And the attractive server returned. So, how do you know it worked? Tracy asked. You know, the Englishman said. The normal reaction expected. He's handling our meat, Tracy, Christopher said, and realized what he said. Please don't go any further with this. How did you make it home? Tracy pressed, and the handsome server handed the team their bucket of food. It took a few shots, and he winked at Tracy. But I got there eventually. Then it was time to return stateside. They nearly missed their flight because Vince thought someone stole the steering wheel. He had a harder time driving on the left-hand side of the road to the airport. The team was forced to zoom by the white cliffs of Dover without stopping, but Tracy vowed he would return. Back home, the trifecta was summoned to the office in Atlanta. As the millennium approached, more markets opened up. From their success abroad, the team was offered the trip of a lifetime. Australia was the most remote place Tracy ever thought of going, although for the company it was the gateway to the islands in the Pacific. So when Tracy's team was offered the opportunity, they jumped on it. Tracy also thought he was up to something, so that night he prayed. What's up with this trip, Lord? Tracy asked. This will be the last one, he said. I had to make it different for you, so you would be ready to move on. And Tracy did become weary of travel, as he flew economy the two days it took to arrive. In Sydney, the vibe of being at the bottom of the other side of the world was immediate. To Tracy, the continent seemed the beginning of time itself. Australia was crisp, alive, and invigorating, with a distinct citrus aroma. Then, Tracy realized the joie de vivre he experienced was because the continent's creatures, great or small, were trying to kill his ass. Life was cherished, because everything Aussie was poisonous. Nothing had time to be sluggish, and had to enjoy every single minute they had left. Brown snakes the size of earthworms packed more venom than a cobra. 
bottled jellyfish strewn across the pristine beaches looked like used condoms, but were a death trap. The parrots of Sydney were like colorful pigeons, except their beaks had the tensile strength of a vice, and they could swarm with Hitchcockian accuracy if a sandwich was desired. But for Tracy, the most ominous creature seemed related to the imps from his visions. In a park behind the skyline of Sydney, weirdly caped balls of fur the size of second-graders drooped from eucalyptus branches. When evening came, their beady eyes lit up. Then, of one accord, an army of flying foxes took to the air. The huge bats screeched across the dying light to hunt, just like the bloodthirsty monsters in the Dracula movies Tracy had watched as a boy. It was then that Tracy realized he was ready for the next thing. He knew that he wanted to go home, and that he wanted to stay there.